Welcome to the Mercy Commons podcast. Thank you for joining us today. We trust that the Word of God encourages you and that the Holy Spirit empowers you. Good morning, everyone. It is uh, good to be with you this morning. It's a privilege to be able to continue our new series in the book of Hebrews. Uh, If you remember from last week, Nick kicked us off by introducing us to this book and to its central theme, which is that Jesus is better. Jesus is better than anything or anyone. You see that word better up on the banner behind me and on the screen, which is now working. Hallelujah. Uh, The Greek word for better appears 18 times in the New Testament. 12 of those 18 times come in the book of Hebrews. It's one of uh, the author of Hebrews' favorite words. Over and over again, the author of Hebrews emphasizes that Jesus is better. Jesus is a better priest than the Old Testament priests were. He offers us a better hope than the law did. Jesus brought a better covenant than Moses did. His sacrifice was better than goats or bulls. His blood speaks a better word. He's given us a better fate than we deserve a better possession than anything we can ever own on earth, a better country than our earthly homeland, a better life to come, and a better promise. So at every, every turn, every chapter, the author of Hebrews emphasizes that Jesus is better. But as this book gets underway, it starts in kind of a, an unexpected place. Uh, This morning, we're going to dive into uh, chapter 1 and the first part of chapter 2. And as we do that, if you look in your Bibles, you'll probably see that the heading says something like, Jesus is better than angels. And uh, when I told Megan that I was going to be speaking on this this morning, she actually laughed in my face. (laughs) And she said, what would you do to Nick to get stuck with that? Because, yeah, I mean, angels don't necessarily feel like the most relevant thing to to a lot of us. Uh, It feels like kind of a strange place to start this letter. If I were to ask you to put together your best explanation of the gospel, your best explanation of who Jesus is and why he's worth following with your life, I'm guessing that most of us probably would not start with a head-to-head matchup between Jesus and angels, right? Angels just aren't aren't really a part of a lot of our day-to-day thoughts. Now, I'm old enough to remember, some of you are too, some of you weren't even born, but there there was like a minute in the 90s where our culture was like obsessed with angels, right? So, TV show, uh, Priscilla, did you watch this, Touched by an Angel? It was huge. Angels in the Outfield was a big movie. Uh, Hallmark angel figurines were flying off the shelves. Christians were reading Frank Peretti novels. I mean, angels, angels were everywhere. These days, we don't tend to hear a whole lot about angels. So why is it important for us to know that Jesus is better than angels? And, and why does the author of Hebrews choose to start here? Uh, I think we're going to see this morning that there's actually something much more powerful and much more profound going on in this passage than that heading of Jesus is better than angels might initially suggest. Uh, But before we get there, and and before we actually read through this passage, I want to take a step back, and I want you to do something. I want you to think for a moment about just how many messages that you receive in any given day. How many different pieces of information advertisements, marketing appeals, 
social media posts are you hit with in a single day? For me, uh, I know that to my great shame, um, I, I start each morning by reading Twitter, uh, or X, or you know, whatever it's called these days, and I'm immediately bombarded by like dozens and dozens of headlines and opinions and ads. And then as I'm getting ready for my day, I'm usually listening to like a podcast or two where I'm getting hit with more information, more ads. I get to work and I'm hit with dozens of emails and you know, Slack messages and Asana tasks and I've got meetings and conversations. You fast forward to the end of the day and I'm watching TV or, or YouTube on my exercise bike and I'm hit with more information, more opinions, more ads. And that's not even to mention all of the, the texts or the DMs or the other social media stuff throughout the day. Right, so every day we are hit with hundreds and hundreds of messages, and that creates challenges for us. On the receiving end, part of the challenge is uh, what, which messages do we pay attention to? How do we prioritize? Where do we spend our attention? What do we respond to? How do we keep up? And then there's also challenges on the communicator side of things. If you've got something important to communicate, how do you break through all that noise? And how do you make sure that your message gets heard? Nick has learned, for example, that if he has an important question for me, let's just say he wants to invite me to preach, that uh, usually I'm, I'm not so great about getting back to him by uh, text or email, right? So Nick will text me, I'll get the thing on my, on my watch, I'll read it, I'll mean to think about it and get back to him, and then I'll forget. Or he'll try emailing me and I'll read it, and then I'll unread it so that I'm reminded to get back to it after I've like checked my calendar and read the passage, and I'll forget. So Nick has learned that if he wants to get a response from me, the best thing is usually to corner me after the service and get up in my face and get a response. Or fan, yeah. Where am I going? So. Throughout the Bible, when God had an important message to deliver, when he wanted to get up in his people's face, he would often send an angel. The word for angel actually can be translated as messenger. So delivering messages was part of angel's job description. And we see throughout the, the biblical storyline at all these key moments that when God had something important to say to his people, he would send an angel. So in the Old Testament, angels appeared to, to patriarchs like Abraham and Jacob and later to Moses. They appeared to judges like Gideon and to Samson's family. They appeared to, to prophets like Elijah and Daniel and Zechariah. In the New Testament, angels appeared to John the Baptist's parents and to Mary and Joseph and to the shepherds, to the women at the tomb, uh, to Peter and the apostles, and then to John in the book of Revelation. But most importantly for this morning, uh, the Jewish people at the time in the New Testament had an understanding that angels had played an important role in the delivering of the Mosaic law to Moses. Uh, we see this in Acts 753, where Stephen says that the law was delivered by angels. And then in Galatians 319, where Paul says that the law was put into effect through angels. 
So the law, this centerpiece of, of Jewish identity, this code that, that shaped how they lived their lives, angels had had a key role in delivering that message from God to his people. Then the other thing about angels is that contrary to how they're often portrayed in TV shows, is that they aren't like these gentle creatures with Scottish accents and white dresses and wings. Angels are these mighty, powerful, intimidating, spiritual, supernatural beings. Usually the first words out of their mouth were something like, don't be afraid or don't worship me. So for the, the original audience of Hebrews, it would have been hard to imagine a being who was more important or more glorious than an angel, other than God himself. And so, at the beginning of this letter, what the author of Hebrews wants the audience to understand is this. If you thought that angels were important, and they are, and if you thought that their message was important, and it was, then you should know that Jesus is the greatest possible messenger who has delivered the greatest possible message and who is worthy of our greatest possible attention. Okay, I'll say that again. It, Jesus is the greatest messenger with the greatest message that deserves our greatest attention. So with that explanation, let's actually dive into this text. And we're going to be reading this morning from Hebrews chapter 1, verse 4 through 2, verse 4. And I'm going to be reading from the Christian Standard Bible. Speaking about Jesus, it says, So he became superior to the angels, just as the name he inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did he ever say, You are my son, today I have become your father. Or again, I will be his father and he will be my son. Again, when he brings his firstborn into the world, he says, and let all God's angels worship him. And about the angels, he says, he makes his angels, angels winds and his servants a fiery flame. But to the Son, your throne, God, is forever and ever, and the scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of justice. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. This is why God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of joy beyond your companions. And in the beginning, Lord, you established the earth, and the heavens are the works of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like clothing. You will roll them up like a cloak, and they will be changed like clothing. But you are the same, and your years will never end. Now to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve those who are going to inherit salvation? For this reason, we must pay attention all the more to what we have heard, so that we will not drift away. For if the message spoken through angels was legally binding, and every transgression and disobedience received a just punishment, how will we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? This salvation had its beginning when it was spoken of by the Lord, and it was confirmed to us by those who heard him. At the same time, God also testified by signs and wonders, various miracles, and distributions of gifts from the Holy Spirit according to his will. Okay, so there's a lot going on in this passage, and, and we're going to take it in, in a few chunks. Uh, it begins with the author of, of Hebrews showing us from Scripture that Jesus is 
the greatest messenger. Uh, and as, as we read just now, he's pulling in all these rapid-fire quotes from the Old Testament that he applies to Jesus. And as he does that, he highlights four different aspects of who Jesus is that make him superior to any other messenger, to any, to any angel. The first thing that we see is that Jesus is the long-promised Son of God. So in verse 5, the author of Hebrews points us back to two short quotes from the Old Testament. We're going to pull them up on the screen there. It says, you are my son, today I have become your father, and I will be his father, and he will be my son. Now to you and me, it doesn't necessarily look like there's a whole lot going on in these sentences right here. They just seem to kind of be like plucked out of context. They don't necessarily seem all that significant. But it's important for us to remember that when a New Testament author would quote from an Old Testament passage, usually they're not just thinking of the the short little snippet that they pull from there. Usually they've got like the entire passage or the entire psalm in mind. So as an example, I'm going to guess that we've got at least a few Taylor Swift fans in, in the group right here, right? So if I were to quote to you a lyric from a Taylor Swift song, Jeremy's not here today, but Jeremy texted me last week that he's trying to learn how to play style on guitar. So if I were to quote to you, you've got that James Dean daydream. Like, yeah, I'm already hearing it it, it finished. Like, many of you could finish those lyrics in your head, and not just that, that line, but all the way through the song. Not only that, you could picture... The, the music video in your head, you'd immediately know which album or which era it's from. Um, you'd know what was going on in Taylor's life at the time that she wrote that song, right? You have all this other context that comes just from me quoting that one little line to you. It's the same thing when New Testament writers quote from the Old Testament. They're pointing back and they're bringing in all this context that comes with it. So in this case, that first quote you are my son, today I have become your father, is pulled from Psalm chapter 2, verse 7. Psalm 2 is a song that's all about God's promise to eventually send a Messiah who would become king over the entire earth. It speaks of this special son of God who will have the nations as his inheritance. And the same thing goes for the, the second quote there, I will be his father and he will be my son. This one comes from 2 Samuel 7.14. It's one of the most significant chapters in the Old Testament. God is speaking to King David, and he makes a promise that David's throne and his kingdom is going to endure forever. And then all throughout the Old Testament, there are promises about this descendant of King David who will one day rule over the nations. So when the author of Hebrews points back to these verses and identifies Jesus as God's son, What he's saying is that Jesus is the Messiah. He's the great descendant of David who has come to be God's perfect representative, bearing God's authority here on earth. For hundreds of years, all of history had looked forward to the arrival of this Messiah, this unique son of God who would claim the nations as his inheritance. And the author of Hebrews is saying, this is that unique promised son of God. And then the author of Hebrews takes things a step further because he says that not only is Jesus the Son of God, but that he actually is God. In verse 8, Hebrews quotes God the Father speaking to Jesus from Psalm 45. And the Father says, 
your throne, O God, calling Jesus God, is forever and ever, and the scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of justice. It's one of the clearest statements in in the New Testament about the divinity of Jesus. He's not just the Son of God. He is God. He's co-equal with God the Father. He's not just a, a human that God chooses to become the Messiah. He wasn't brought into existence by the Father. There was never a time that he didn't exist. Jesus is God, sharing in the divine essence with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. And so unlike angels who are just servants, the author of Hebrews wants us to see that Jesus is God and that he is the righteous God. It says in this passage that Jesus rules with a scepter of justice and that he's anointed with the oil of joy. So Jesus' rule as God is, is defined by justice and joy. When we think about our political leaders, presidents and governors and other, other leaders, we don't tend to think of justice and joy. We think of corruption and crankiness, right? Pride and power grabs. Jesus' perfect rule is defined by justice and joy. He's a joyful God who brings justice in place of wickedness and oppression and corruption. So Jesus is the promised Son of God. Jesus is the righteous God. And next, the author of Hebrews shows us that Jesus is the eternal creator. In verse 10, again, he's quoting God the Father, this time from Psalm 102, saying, in the beginning, Lord, again, calling Jesus Lord, you established the earth, and the heavens are the works of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. We see here that Jesus is the one who created everything. Paul says something similar in Colossians 1, which we read last week, um, where, where, where Paul says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Everything was created by him in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities. All things have been created by him, through him, and for him. Uh, I, was, I was at a concert uh, a few weeks back where they had this big LED screen that was behind the band while they were playing. And they started into this instrumental song, and um, there was a camera that was like zoomed in on a guy's hand. And as the song got underway, the camera started slowly panning back, and you could see that the hand was resting on this guy's chest, and this guy was lying down in a park somewhere, and then you could see that the park was next to a lake, and that the lake was next to Chicago, and as it kept panning out slowly over the course of the song, you could see first the United States, and then the earth came into view, and then the solar system, and back and back it went, packed through the Milky Way, through distant stars, a light year away, a hundred light years away, a thousand light years away, until it got to a hundred million light years away. Obviously, this is not a real camera, it's a visualization. (laughs) About a hundred million light years away. And then it started zooming in quickly, back through these stars, back into the Milky Way, back into the solar system, to Earth, to Chicago, back onto this guy's hand. And then it kept zooming in, and it went into little cracks in his skin, into the layers of skin, into the cells, down into the little spirals of of DNA, down to the smallest little particle. 
And, and this was not a Christian concert, but as I'm sitting there watching this, I was just overcome with a, a sense of, of worship as I was reminded of the fact that Jesus is the one who created all of that, that he is the author of all creation. He sustains it all. He designed it all from the farthest flung edges of, of the universe all the way down to the smallest little particle in your body. He created it all. He knows it all. Uh, he is the eternal creator. And then the fourth aspect of Jesus' identity that the author of Hebrews highlights is that he is the triumphant victor. And again, we have God the Father speaking to God the Son, this time from Psalm 110, where it says, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And the image that we have here is the risen Jesus sitting on the throne next to the Father with their feet propped up on their enemies. Their enemies have been defeated and humiliated. And the great hope of the Christian faith uh, is that we know how the story ends. When you flip to the end of the Bible, you see that Jesus wins and that there is a day coming when there will be no more death, no more pain, no more sorrow, no more tears. Nothing will be able to stand against him. Every knee will bow. And so for now, we experience real pain and hardships and tragedies, but we're able to bear those things because of this guarantee that Jesus has won the victory, that he sits on the throne, and that one day he will set everything right. So in just these handful of verses, we see that Jesus is the Son, that he is God, that he is Lord, he is creator, he is righteous, he is eternal and unchanging, he is victorious. He is the greatest possible messenger, far superior to any angel. And now the writer of Hebrews says he has come in person, in the flesh, to bring us the greatest possible message. And the author of Hebrews is going to take the entire book to kind of unpack what exactly that message is, but he sums it up here in, in verse 3 of chapter 2 with just one word salvation. He calls it such a great salvation. So some of you know that I work at Biola University. Many of you have various levels of connection to Biola. For many years, uh, when Biola was located in downtown Los Angeles, it's there on the left, uh, up on top of this building, which was one time the tallest building in LA, they had these two giant neon signs that each had two words on them. And it proclaimed this message that Jesus saves over the city of LA. Today, one of those signs still exists. It's on top of the Ace Hotel in, uh, in LA, kind of hipster hotel. Uh, they, I'm sure they just keep it up there because it's like this kitschy, like throwback to these simpler times when people thought that Jesus saves. But really, this is the core of the gospel message right here. This is the greatest message that we could hope to receive, that Jesus saves. Jesus saves us from something and Jesus also saves us for something. That is the gospel. Jesus saves us from sin. He saves us from the penalty of sin by dying the death that we deserve to die. He saves us from the power of sin by conquering over death with his resurrection. He saves us from the path of sin by, by modeling for us a, a different way of living and by giving us his spirit to empower us to walk in his ways in holiness. 
And then he saves us from the pain of sin by, by bearing our shame and offering us healing and restoration. But Jesus doesn't just save us from. Jesus also saves us into something. Jesus saves us into his kingdom where we experience his rule and his reign. He saves us into the family of God where we experience adoption as his sons and daughters. He saves us into the body of Christ, the church, where we get to use our diverse gifts to serve and love one another. He saves us into a new purpose, a new way of living, a new covenant, a new creation. He saves us into abundant, eternal life, which starts now, not in some distant future in in heaven, but it starts now as we get to know him and experience a relationship with him. That is the heart of the gospel, that Jesus saves us from death and brings us to life. That is the greatest message that we could hope to receive, the great salvation that the author of Hebrews wants us to focus on. So if Jesus is the greatest messenger and his gospel is the greatest message, what is our response? In verse 1 of chapter 2, the author of Hebrews gives us an answer. He writes, for this reason, or in light of everything he's just said about the greatness of Jesus, for this reason, we must pay attention all the more to what we have heard so that we will not drift away. Other translations say we must pay greater attention or we must pay the most careful attention. And as we read through Hebrews in the coming weeks, we're going to see that this is a repeated theme, that the author was concerned that his original audience of Jewish Christian believers um, would drift away from Jesus and go back to their old way of life in the Mosaic law, back to temple sacrifices, back to dietary laws, back to keeping themselves away from Gentiles. And there are many reasons why they would have been tempted to do this. Uh, Some of these communities were facing persecution, right? We read through the New Testament about early Christians who were being put in prison or put to death for claiming that Jesus was the Messiah. Others would have felt cultural pressures to go back to their old way of life. You can imagine being raised for your whole life to celebrate all of these festivals and to practice all these rituals and take part in sacrifices and experience this deep sense of of pride in your ethnic identity. And those things would have been deeply ingrained in them. And then on top of that, you can imagine how hard it would have been for some of them if they had put their, their trust in Jesus, but they had family members and friends who didn't and they were isolated from them. So there would have been a strong pull to go back to what felt uh, familiar and safe. And so it's in that context that the, the author of Hebrews says, don't drift away. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Pay closer attention to him. Let the truth of who he is settle into your soul. Be convinced that the message of Jesus is better than the message from angels. Now today, I think most of us are not in danger of drifting to uh, the Mosaic law. Um, But there are other things that might cause people to drift. Uh, In some cases, it's disengagement um, from the church or from spiritual practices, kind of just this slow fading away from involvement in a community of faith. In some cases, it's disillusionment with God or with other Christians that goes unaddressed, that allows resentment to, to fester and build. 
In some cases, drift is caused by doubt that goes unexpressed so that people struggle in silence rather than finding support and answers in the context of community. But one of the biggest challenges for, for us today, I think, is the challenge of distraction. Right? You think back on the question that I asked you at the outset about just how many things are coming at you in a given day. How many different messages and voices are competing for your time and attention? If you were to do an audit of how you spend your time uh, and how you spend your money and what you invest your mental energy in, what would that reveal about what most matters to you? I think most of us in this room would say that we want Jesus to be at the center of our lives. But I think many of us, if we're honest, would say that when we compare our passion for Jesus to the passion that we express for things like politics or TV shows or fantasy football or Instagram or PlayStation or whatever else it is, um, that that passion far outweighs it. We struggle uh, with distraction and with apathy. There's a professor at Biola named uh, Uche Anizor who, who wrote a whole book about this last year called Overcoming Apathy. Christianity Today actually named it their best book of the entire year because it puts its finger on this issue that, that so many people uh, are, are facing. And, and here's one thing that he observes in the book. He says, the paradox of apathy is that we are captivated by things that we don't really care about and we're lukewarm to the things that in our heart of hearts mean the most to us. We don't act on what we should act on, but we are awakened to things that we should probably ignore. And so, for example, many of us, if you pull up the next line, find ourselves experiencing this equation right here. Buckets of time looking at screens, plus almost no time in spiritual disciplines equals meh. And if that meh is true for you, I've got some good news. Our next life group module, which we're starting this week, is all about our relationship with our phones and our devices and, and our practices. So uh, sign up for a life group. Get ready to do that, that good spiritual work. That's right. Good soul work over the month ahead. But look, whether it is phones or politics or money, or an area of, of sin, or something else, uh, I believe that the encouragement and the invitation for us from God's Word this morning is to take an honest assessment with God and to ask ourselves, are there things in, in my life that are getting in the way and that are making it more difficult for me to focus on and live out the message of the gospel? Are there habits that I need to break or are there habits that I need to form that will help me pay greater attention to Jesus? One of the cures for, for apathy and distraction is to invite God to break through all of the noise and to fix our eyes on Jesus. And, and I believe that one of the things that the Holy Spirit wants to do this morning and in, in the coming weeks as we go through this series is to just recaptivate us with the glory and the majesty and the greatness uh, of Jesus as we spend time together in Hebrews, allowing us to pay greater attention to him, um, to, to have a new vision of just how worthy he is of our time and our attention. So as the band um, comes back up, um, in just a minute, we're going to go back into, into worship and into 
communion. And as we do that, I just want to invite you just to center your thoughts right now on, on Jesus, not on any other things that's going to be going on later today or on lunch plans, but to fix your eyes on Jesus. And to help you do that, I want you to uh, close your eyes right now. And I want you to think for a moment about the largest gathering of people that, you have, that you've ever been in. I think for many of us, it's probably a stadium of some kind, maybe for a football game or a concert. For me, it's probably SoFi Stadium, surrounded by 70,000 other people. And I want you to think of that massive group of people and think of the roar of that crowd as they cheer for whatever it is that they're gathered there to cheer for. Near the end of the Bible, in Revelation chapter 5, John has a vision of heaven. And in this vision, Jesus is standing before the throne and he's being worshipped by 24 elders. But then the picture pans out and John looks around and he sees that he is surrounded by millions of angels crying out with a roar. Then I looked and I heard the sound of many angels surrounding the throne, the living creatures and the elders. They numbered in the millions, thousands upon thousands. They said in a loud voice, worthy is the slaughtered lamb to receive power, wealth, wisdom and might and honor, glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea. I heard everything everywhere say, blessing, honor, glory, and power belong to the one seated on the throne and to the Lamb forever and always. Jesus, you are our great King who is worthy of our greatest attention and praise. We worship you now. As Jason was preaching, he mentioned two elements, the one of drifting away. And when we drift away, it means that there isn't intentionality in terms of our pursuit. There, there's just nothing. It's, it's what happens when you drift. You're just in this current and you, you drift away. And then he also, that scripture talks about, do not neglect such a great salvation. And this morning, we may be in one of those two camps. There may be a sense in which we feel like we're drifting. We know Jesus is Lord. We know He's the Savior of it all. But there isn't an intentionality with which we're pursuing the reality of what that means in our lives. Or you may be here this morning and really just not know. There's a sense of neglecting. Is a sense of, of, of hearing these things and, and not really being able to connect the dots. What I want to invite you to this morning is it's actually quite simple. The salvation that you're either neglecting or drifting away from is, is really quite simple. Jesus is better than the angels because He is the message. Because it was His blood and His body broken to pay the penalty of our sins. He's greater than the angels because he receives the angels' accolade and applause. He's better than the angels because they came and they declared 
the Son of God, Emmanuel, has come to be with us. And at the end of the age, we get to join the angels and sing, Worthy, worthy is the Lamb that was slain. And this morning, we get to participate in that tradition as we celebrate the slain Lamb. And so I want to invite you, if you're a follower of Jesus, to go to the table at the back and to the side and to grab the elements that represent why Jesus is better. Get a cup that represents his blood, a piece of bread that represents his body, and come and we'll take communion together. As we go through Hebrews, one of the things that we'll recognize is that there's this invitation into the throne of God, before the throne of God. And... Um, we don't have the opportunity necessarily like the Hebrews did to enter this temple, this, this awesome piece of architecture that represented that. But what we do have is the opportunity to stand before God every moment of every day recognizing that we are in His throne. Before the throne of God above, have a strong and perfect plea, a great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. His name is graven, sorry, my name is graven on his hands, my name is written on his heart. I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue can bid me thence depart. Let's take the bread that symbolizes the broken body of Jesus and let's eat together. Let's take the cup that represents his shed blood that paid the penalty of our sins. Before the throne of God above, we have a strong and perfect plea. These elements that are in our hands remind us, Jesus, of what you've done for us. It is with soberness and joy that we stand with our brothers and sisters and are so thrilled that you the greatest messenger with the greatest message have enabled us also to become those messengers. God, you are worthy of all praise and all honor and all glory for all eternity. As we go out, Let's go out with the joy of remembering that our life is hid with Christ on high, that we are those that walk in the reality of a salvation that angels could not participate in, but actually presented a message for us to taste the glory of. And that we also, like the angels, have a responsibility to speak of the hope that is within us. Let's go out there and be the church. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Mercy Commons podcast. If you enjoyed today's content, please rate us and hit subscribe. And if you'd like to learn more about us, visit our website at mercycommons.church.